Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. To mark International Women's Day, we're dedicating all seven days this week to examining the challenges and triumphs of women around the world through art, sport, literature, and politics. According to Egyptian writer and activist Mona El Tahawe, there are seven necessary sins for women and girls anger, ambition, profanity, violence, attention, lust, and power are all attributes that the patriarchy sees as vices for women, she says, but we should harness them as virtues. On this episode of the podcast, which was recorded in 2021, Mona was joined in conversation by physicist and broadcaster Helen Chersky to discuss how women and girls can tap into that inner fury and rather than surviving the patriarchy, we can dismantle it. Here's Helen with more. And it's a great pleasure that we are all here for this Intelligence Squared event. Um, And as Connor said, I'm Helen Chersky. Now, we live in a patriarchal society. However, some of us, perhaps I'd guess, you know, half did not choose to be living under this umbrella. And knowing we don't want to be here is one thing, but knowing what to do about it, well, maybe that's something else. Our guest tonight is Mona El Tahawi. She is a very highly acclaimed feminist activist and author, and she knows exactly what she wants to do about the patriarchy. And uh, she has written a book. Here it is to tell us all about it. It is called The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. It's been out in the US for a while, but it is published in the UK today. And this is what we're going to be talking about now. Mona, it's a great pleasure to have you join us here. Now, normally, I, I have to say I might start a book interview by giving a brief overview of the book and in this case it does feel like not quite the right thing to do because you have such a strong voice you have things to say you don't need anyone to speak for you when it comes to you know interpreting your words you know you've got a voice and you demand to use it so with that in mind you want to tell us a little bit about what your book is all about absolutely hello Helen it's a pleasure to be speaking with you about my book And, you know, I really wish we were together in the same room, but, you know, the times being as they are, I will start, though, the way that I usually start when I have events like this. And that is, hello, everyone. My name is Mona El-Tahawi. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And this is my declaration of faith. Fuck the patriarchy. And in those three sentences, Helen, is basically like my agenda for the world. And um, that book obviously lays out the agenda and um, how I believe we can achieve it. But basically, in that declaration of faith, fuck the patriarchy, that is what I wake up to do every day. Well, it sounds, honestly, it sounds like you've got a lot of work on your hands. But let's let's start with some basics, just so we're all on the same page. The patriarchy, the word patriarchy might mean different things to different people. What does it mean to you? The textbook definition of patriarchy is usually systems of oppression that privilege male dominance. And I know that usually goes over many people's heads. And I'm often asked, like, who is the patriarchy? Because people think there's this, like, one particular man. Like, is it Donald Trump? Should I go? And, like, if I get rid of Donald Trump, is the patriarchy over and done with? And so I've come up with a metaphor or analogy, if you like, to, to better explain what the patriarchy is and how it works. 
And I liken a patriarchy to an octopus. So we might have a lot to discuss here, but like what the octopus and, and all other kind of sea creatures. You'll but get me very I distracted between... if we go off into sea creatures. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I recognize the octopus is a beautiful creature. I really do. So my apologies, octopus, but you're very useful for my analogy. So I want people to imagine an octopus and the head of that octopus is patriarchy. And each one of the eight tentacles is one of those oppressions that privilege male dominance. So one tentacle, for example, is white supremacy or racism. Another is misogyny. Another is capitalism. Another is homophobia, transphobia, ableism, ageism. Those are all the oppressions that together privilege male dominance. And I, I want people to imagine who is squeezed between those tentacles. So depending on where you are and who you are and how marginalized you are, you will be squeezed by one, two, or possibly all eight of the tentacles. And you say later on in the book, you, there's this very important sentence, I think, that follows on from, from what you just said, which is that patriarchy isn't about men and feminism isn't about hating men. The, pro the focus is actually somewhere else. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. This is why I want people to imagine the octopus, because when they imagine the octopus, they, they can see that there are a lot of men who will also be caught in the tentacles of the octopus. It's not just women who are hurt by patriarchy. And it's not just men who benefit from patriarchy, because there are women who do benefit from patriarchy and benefit from being what I call foot soldiers of the patriarchy. In the United States, for example, the majority of white women voters choose the Republican Party, which is known to be very misogynist, very homophobic, very racist. So there are women who benefit from patriarchy and there are men who are, who are hurt by patriarchy. So what, what feminism, when, when people ask me what is feminism then, I tell them feminism is the destruction of patriarchy. Because for me, feminism is a, is a revolutionary movement that aims to liberate us from that octopus. And I want people to remember that as in like real life octopi, each one of those tentacles has a brain of its own. Am I right in saying that, yes, Helen? Absolutely. So it, so, so it's very devious patriarchy is because it can move those tentacles independently of each other or in tandem with each other. Well, let's get on to your methods. So the book is structured with these uh, seven sins, which is a very, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a powerful list. I mean, it Let's read through the list. So anger, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence and lust. So those are the things. Tell us. What, so those, that's what you want. So the, the, the premise of the book is that women, these are these are seen as vices, but you want people to be women to be proud of them. Absolutely. And also, just as a quick note as well, I mean, the title of the book is The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. But, I, but you know, I go to great lengths in the book itself to say that I'm, I'm very inclusive of the trans community and gender non-conforming communities. I mean, it, it's a catchy title, Women and Girls, but it's basically that the aim of my book is anyone who is not a cisgender heterosexual man and doesn't benefit from that octopus called patriarchy. So I deliberately use that structure because I'm obviously riffing off Christianity's seven deadly sins. And I, clearly, I don't think the sins that I have in my book are sins. They, they are virtues, not vices. But patriarchy tells us that they're vices, tells us that they're sins, because I believe that these are the things that patriarchy doesn't want us to want to do or to be or to aspire to. So I, I go through the list, as you say, and, and the list is, is in ascending order of difficulty and importance, with anger being kind of like the junior sin, if you like. And, and I say that because I think a lot of people think that anger is the beginning and the end. And a lot of books have been written recently about anger, especially women and anger, and yay, women have to be angry. But then, okay, what, what happens after the anger? And that's the point of the six sins that follow the anger. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about something that you do mention right at the start, which is why you are angry. So this is partly, you know, your your background, but it's also connected with things the patriarchy has very specifically done to you physically. Tell us a little bit about where your anger comes from to start us off. I'm a very angry woman. I tell people this. When people ask me, you know, what inspires you to write any particular thing, I tell them whatever has made me angry that day. And so, you know, I begin the book by saying I wrote this book. The first sentence in the book is I wrote this book with enough rage to fuel a rocket. And I wrote it while I was high on kind of like the the energy that I got from beating the fuck out of a man in a club in Montreal, Canada. And I had gone out dancing with my beloved. I was 50 years old, 5'0", and it's, it's an important number to remember. And I'd gone out dancing because I had wanted to take care of myself after days of, of receiving really gut-wrenching stories from women of Muslim descent after I started a hashtag called hashtag Mosque Me Too. And that hashtag was inspired by Tarana Burke's Me Too movement, but it was designed as an act of solidarity for fellow Muslim women who wanted to talk about being sexually assaulted in Mecca, which is the holiest site for Muslims, or in Muslim sacred spaces. And I began it in February of 2018 because I heard that a young Pakistani woman called Sabika Khan had posted on Facebook about being sexually assaulted in Mecca. And that took me back to when I was 15, now 1-5, in 1982, and I'd gone on pilgrimage with my family to perform the fifth pillar of Islam, and I was sexually assaulted twice during pilgrimage. So between those two, the hashtag Mosque Me Too, and then going out to a club and being sexually assaulted is like, is my life, basically. Now, when I was 15, I froze and burst into tears, a perfectly natural reaction to sexual assault. But when I was 50, in that club in Montreal, I tracked down the man who sexually assaulted me. I tugged at his shirt so hard that he fell. He wasn't expecting me to fight back, of course. And after he fell, I sat on him and I punched and I punched and I punched. And every time I punched him, I yelled at him, don't you ever touch a woman like that again. And it was glorious to beat the fuck out of this man. And after he got up, he, he, took, he, he wanted to see who is this woman who just beat me up. I smacked him so hard across his jaw, I almost broke my fingers. And he realized I was going to start beating him up again, and he ran away. Now, there's a very telling end to this, to this anecdote, because the club manager tracked me down, because, you know, everyone in the club was talking about this woman who beat up this man. And he came to ask me what happened. And then he looked at my beloved, and he said, why didn't you let your husband take care of it? And I said to him, first of all, he's not my husband. And second of all, this is my body and I take care of it. That book was fueled by, by, by that rage. The memory of what happened to me at 15 when I couldn't do anything and the shame of it, even though I'd done nothing to be ashamed of, and what happened when I was 50 and how I did take care of it and how energizing and glorious it was to beat up this predator. And I think, you know, in that story, there will be things which appeal to uh, certainly resonate with lots of different women. And for me, as a very, you know, I've always been very independent, but it's that assumption that there's a man who's going to sort things out. Like, even if it's the plumber turns up and I'm talking about how the boiler works, like I have a PhD in physics and they're looking for the bloke to tell him how it works. <laughs> and, you know, like it is, and, and we will get onto the profanity, but it is very hard not to swear at that point. Um, but you're very constructive with this. The thing I like about the book is that you are very, you, you, this list, as you say, they are associated with being vices. They sound like negative things, but you turn them into very positive things. And one of the examples, in, again, just in the first chapter on anger, you, you discuss a curriculum called Rage for Girls. And I really like this idea. So tell us what is in your, your Rage for Girls curriculum and how you teach it. 
Right. Well, I, I thought of this idea for the curriculum because I believe, I truly believe that we're all born with what I call a pilot light of rage that keeps us aware of injustices and allows us to be rightfully outraged at injustice. Because, of course, you know, what's the reaction to, to injustice? It should be anger. But that pilot light of rage in girls is, is snuffed out as we, as we grow up, you know, because we're told to be nice and polite and quiet and it's not good to be angry and to basically wait. Wait for what? I'm, you know, basically for the man to take care of it. And so I thought, you know, we, what can we do so we can keep this pilot light of rage flaming in, inside girls? And so I, I looked to like feminist icons of mine and I mentioned some of the names in that chapter. And so what I've been doing is kind of like a magpie collecting all of these feminist icons and things they've said. And, and I'm, I'm truly, literally kind of compiling this curriculum. So for two examples, one is the author Ursula K. Le Guin, who spoke, and I, and I quote from a graduation speech that she gave at a women's college in the US, where she told these young women who are about to graduate that you are volcanoes. And when volcanoes erupt, they change the, the, the way the earth looks. But she said, she told them, you have power in you and you don't know about this power in you. So I want to tap into this power that girls are told they don't have. And another one of my feminist heroes and icons is the black bisexual poet and feminist activist June Jordan. And she too spoke to a women's college in which she gave this wonderful speech about how as a feminist revolutionary activist, she's an internationalist who connects patriarchy to all the other oppressions that I, I, I describe in that octopus. Because she says, as an activist, I'm not just concerned with what happens locally, but I connect it to what happens globally. So what I'm doing with this curriculum is I'm collecting all of these feminists and these incredibly powerful things that they've said to show girls, kind of like use them as milestones along the way so that girls can see that they have power and that they can change the world with that power that they're told they don't have. I want them to know they have it. I think it's it's one of those things. It's almost it's almost easy to forget. It's necessary. I think so. I I this I remember so on the few occasions I've had you know serious sexual harassment type things, and I have complained. The most the first time it happened when I was maybe twenty five, twenty six. I remember I I went to an older woman in the in the university where I worked, and she said, "Oh, they do that." And mm. that was more depressing than because I was like, well, this idiot's done this thing, but I'm going to tell her so that she, he doesn't do it again. And she and this reaction, there was a generation of women, you know, and my mother found it as well. You know, she she just she said the worst thing was this just acceptance that pe that women. Oh, they do that. And and that 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 was more depressing than anything that happened to either of my mother or I, I think just the, the giving up. And it's still there, isn't it? People haven't like, we used to say, oh, it's all in the past, but it isn't, is it? No, absolutely not. You know, what, what you're saying reminds me of, of two things that I think are perfect illustrations. One is when the Me Too movement began in France, Catherine Deneuve, you know, who's this older, revered actress, she spoke out against it and she said, oh, come on, we've all gone through this. It's seduction. It's I don't know what. It's the way it is in France. And I couldn't believe it, you know, he is this, you know, icon of French cinema saying exactly that, you know, it happens. And basically it's kind of like we put up with it. But then the antithesis of that was when Alexandra, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, you know, what the youngest woman ever elected to the U.S. Congress, she was called a fucking bitch by a male rep a Republican representative. And she got up in the U.S. Congress and she gave this incredible speech that I believe will go down in like feminist history as a great example of feminist rhetoric in which she said, 
you know, I know I'm not the first woman who was called this. And I know that this, you know, male Republican representative is not the first man who said this. But it stops with me because my parents raised me to speak out. And she just laid it all out. And, and, and I love that disruption. And I think that, you know, I, I, I appreciate all basically the shit that older women had to put up with, but we don't have to put up with it. And this is what I love about younger women who are determined not to put up with it. They say, yes, we know you put up with it and you're very courageous and strong and everything, but we're not putting up with it anymore. And that disruption is part of what my book aims to get at, to defy, disobey and disrupt the patriarchy and say no more. We are not putting up with it. Well, let's get on to some of the other necessary sins. So, because I think they all have, I mean, what you lay out is that they all have their place. This, this constructive way of doing things is that these are, these are not negative traits when used in the right place at the right. I mean, you're not, you're not I don't think, uh, advocating violence in all situations. You're advocating it when it's necessary. So let's, let's get to the profanity because, you know, this, this is something that is very striking, actually, in that, you know, it's not, women are not expected to swear even now. It's just not expected. And when you do it, and I do because of the worlds I move in sometimes, and people are like, oh, and you're like, well, the bloke just said it. So tell us why profanity is such a powerful thing. Because, you know, I would get up on stage and, you know, I I do a lot of public speaking. You know, before the pandemic, I used to travel like three quarters of the year I would travel. And I would see the way people would react, just like you said, whenever I would swear, whenever I would use any kind of profanity. And I recognized the power in that. And I was like, what is that? And it really hit home, and that's why I spend about half of the chapter on profanity, when I, I, I learned of the Ugandan feminist, Dr. Stella Nianzi, who is an academic and an activist who actually now lives in exile in Kenya, because she's, she's actually been imprisoned several times by the Ugandan dictatorship for being deliberately, intentionally offensive and profane. And in reading more about her work and reading uh, you know, why she's profane, I learned that, so there's an academic who I quote in the book, who describes what Selenianzi does as a form of radical rudeness. And its roots lie in British-occupied Uganda. So when the Brits occupied Uganda, the anti-colonial movement there, you know, began to use whatever means they thought were, were right to liberate themselves from British occupation. And the occupiers actually demanded that they be polite. And they were like, fuck you. <laughs> there is nothing polite about colonization and nothing polite about occupation. And it's that spirit that Selenianzi continues today. And it's that spirit that I I use to explain why I'm profane. There is nothing polite about patriarchy. There is nothing polite about violence against women. There is nothing polite about racism or any of the oppressions that the octopus, you know, the tentacles of, of the octopus. So to expect me to be polite as I'm fighting those oppressions is basically a way to maintain the authority of the oppressor, of the racist, of, of the, the patriarch. And that became like really crystal clear during the Trump regime, as I call it, when, you know, we would say, you're racist for voting for Trump. And people would say, no, civility, civility, don't call people racist. And they would actually demand that we were civil in talking about things that were utterly uncivil. And so I say that I'm deliberately profane because I consider swearing and profanity the verbal equivalence of civil disobedience. Well, you also make the point that there's an equivalence here that if you look at the things that happen to women under a patriarchy, they will get onto the violence. But, you know, they are really, I mean, if you want to look for offence, it's not in the words, is it? (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. And it, it's it's really interesting. And, and I, I want people to stop and think about how patriarchy doesn't just control our bodies and what we can and can't do with our bodies. It controls our language. And every two or three weeks, a woman will swear somewhere and it, the world turns upside down because she said, fuck or shit. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> there are crimes being committed against women every day. And language is what really got you upset. So I think we really have to, and that, that's what I try to do with all the chapters here. Take those things and just demand that people look at them differently. Let's let's get on to oh, there's so so many so many sins to choose from. It's very <laughs> I like this. So violence. Now, one of the things that you said towards the end is that, and this is a, it's something I it it it's something that is not unexpected. Like many of the things you but once framed like this, it's very different. And you say that rape only exists because men do not fear women enough. And that is really, it's a really deep way of looking at it because, of course, it's true that if men thought that and if they if they were afraid that there would be retaliation, you know, they, they wouldn't try. And it's not, you know, of course, rape can be committed both ways. Predominantly, it is male on female violence. Tell us about the this fear you you say towards the end of the book that you want to terrorize the patriarchy this is not about as you said being polite you actually you know there are in fact every way of describing this is profane but you know you want to scare the shit out of them yeah yeah i i, I absolutely do you know i wrote this book in 2018 it was published in north america in 2019 so way before the pandemic but I think this particular chapter is so apt for what is happening now because across the world, there are women in lockdown and shelter in place with what I call their terrorists, who are their partners. In, and, and, they're sub, and those partners subject them to what is sometimes called domestic abuse. I call it intimate partner terrorism. And the fact that there are women who are sheltering at home, which we're told is, you know, the safe place. You know, you know in the UK, Sarah Everard was abducted and murdered by a police officer while she was walking home. And people are like, oh, my God, you know, the streets are ours and we should be safe walking home. And, you know, this idea of outside being dangerous and home being safe. Home is one of the most dangerous places for women, girls and queer people. And, and the pandemic has taught us that. And I'm, and I'm glad I wrote that chapter now because this idea of retaliation, to, to think that right now, in the, because of the pandemic, there's been a 30% increase in intimate partner violence is a reminder that men don't fear retaliation. And I'm sitting there thinking, don't these men who abuse and beat women, don't they ever stop to think, you know, she's in the kitchen all day. She could poison me. She's in the kitchen all day where all these really sharp instruments are. She could stab me to death while I sleep. They never think that because patriarchy, first of all, enables them and protects them when they're violent against us. And patriarchy has socialized them to not expect us to fight back, and patriarchy has socialized us not to fight back. And so I use two feminist kind of authorities in my chapter. The first is the feminist psychiatrist Judith Herman, who said that the legal system is designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women and children from the superior power of men. So for those people who say to me, you know, you should take it to the law and not take the law in your own hands, I tell them, well, the law does jack shit, okay? That, that's the law for you. But then there's a, there's a professor of law, and you know, and to think that a professor of law wrote this is really powerful, called Mary Ann Franks. After I beat up that man in the club in Montreal, she contacted me and she said, 
read this uh, this article that I wrote for a law journal because I believe what you did tonight was a perfect example of optimal violence. And by optimal violence, she means exactly this. When a man walks down the street and he sees another man, he thinks twice before he thinks, you know what, I'm going to beat him up because he thinks, you know what, this guy could fight back. But men never think twice when they abuse women, when they sexually assault women or think to do it. So I want patriarchy not just to think twice. I want to terrify patriarchy. I want men to expect us to fight back. But I say all of this and I stress this in the book, I want us to survive. So I recognize that we can't always fight back. And this is not my way of placing the burden on, on the victim, which is us. This is my way of putting patriarchy on notice that when we can fight back, we will fight back. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Now, I'm sure you, have, you must have spoken about this book in many countries and I want to, I'm just thinking about the things that you might hear and I'm anticipating here maybe I'm wrong but it occurs to me that you know perhaps somewhere you know I live in London I can walk the streets of London I have not ever personally been raped you know I I have not suffered many of the very worst things that men do to women and and so someone living in London they might say to you oh well you know the female genital mutilation all these terrible things happen over there but over here, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better. What What is your response to that? Because you're quite direct about it. <laughs> My response to that is I'm not here to make you feel good about over here. And I don't want you to think that it's shit over there. I want you to know that it's shit everywhere because patriarchy exists everywhere because of that. That octopus called patriarchy is universal. And, you know, a perfect example of that is I was in Australia in 2019 speaking on one of the most popular current affairs shows called Q&A. And I, um, it was an episode that coincided with a feminist festival. So it was a, a panel of feminists, women and a non-binary person who was also indigenous. That episode has since been banned. So it broadcast live, but it was banned. And why was it banned? Because mostly white Australian men complained to the network that I incited violence by asking the question, how many rapists must we kill before men stop raping women? And because I said fuck 10 times, and because the indigenous non-binary person who was on the panel said, you know, how long must indigenous people be polite and kind of like patiently wait for white Australians to stop 
abusing and murdering them. Now, had I sat on that panel and talked about, you know, the list of shit over there, like, you know, in the way that they would have expected me to about, oh, look what happens in Egypt or look what happens in Saudi Arabia, they would have been perfectly fine. But I was in Australian living rooms telling them, you are raping women at X rate every day. And, you know, one woman is killed every week in Australia. So I was basically reminding people that it's shit over here. And for doing that, that episode is now banned. And this is the country now, Australia, where the attorney general has been accused of sexual violence, where, you know, they have this horrendous scandal of sexual violence. So I think people are uh, being deliberately, uh, they're being disingenuous or they're living in denial. And my message to anyone who hasn't faced any kind of patriarchal abuse is you're really lucky. And that privilege that you live in is short-lived because I think what shocked so many women with the Sarah Everard a case is that this happened to a white woman and it happened to a white woman by a police officer. Now, black women and women of color are murdered and ignored, you know, all the time, including in the UK. And white women especially expect the police to protect them. But the rest of us don't expect that protection from the police. So I think the Sarah Everard case and then the violent way that the vigil, the, the vigil that was in for Sarah Everard was broken up. And then also the violence used against people in the Kill the Bill protests in the UK. This is a, a bill that's supposed to give the police even more powers in the UK. I think has have shaken people enough, I hope, to remember that it's shit over here and not just over there. And you, you use a very interesting comparison just to, to move one step on from that, which is when you're talking about, you know, you speak of in America, particularly this, you know, people looking at, for example, Muslim women who wear the hijab and saying, oh, well, they are oppressed. And yet those women voted for Trump. Tell me about that comparison. Yeah, I wrote an essay for Feminist Giant, which is the newsletter that I write, called If Amy Coney Barrett Was a Muslim. And Amy Coney Barrett was nominated for the Supreme Court by Donald Trump, and she was confirmed. This woman comes from an extremely conservative extremist Catholic background. And if you read into her background, and you just removed her name and removed who she was, I guarantee that most white Americans would say, ah, that sounds like a Saudi woman, you know, because they're in such denial about the kind of patriarchal and misogynist violence, even if it doesn't seem like violence to them, that they accept. And, and the theocracy, too, and I call it theocracy in the United States, because I, I, I see what the Republican Party is doing and what white evangelicals have done to the United States. And it's theocracy and it's theocracy in power. And it elected Donald Trump to basically be its president. But they don't see that because they only see it over there because they benefit from that. So these white women who voted for Donald Trump, we often say they voted against their, their interests, but they actually voted to uphold their interests because their interests are the men in their family, their husbands, their brothers, their sons. Now, most of those Christian conservative white women in the United States are very happy with that, but they seem to think that it's Muslim women who are oppressed. So they're invested in pointing at Muslim women and saying, ha, look how oppressed you are, going up to a Muslim woman in a headscarf in a supermarket and asking, did your husband make you do that? And they don't reflect that back to themselves and ask, did their husbands make them vote for Donald Trump? What, who is the head of their household? How free are they? And what does their religious and political background teach them about the role of women? So in this essay, If Amy Coney Barrett Was a Muslim, I, I basically unpack that hypocrisy and say exactly that, that this is about patriarchy, whether it's in the United States or in a Muslim-majority country.
you you're very specific about breaking the patriarchy. So so it seems this this question of merging between worlds. So for example, during COVID, you know, we've seen that countries with female leaders who are more collaborative and all these things, you know, they're leading a country. They've generally done better during COVID. And it sounds like maybe that that's not quite enough for you. That you don't want you don't want them to sort of sneak into the patriarchy and change it from the inside. You just want to smash the whole thing apart. But how does all what what do you want when it comes to all of this? Right. Well, I mean, that that's basically the kind of like the gist or the premise of the chapter on power, because it, it's really important for me that people understand that I don't support a woman just because she's a woman. And that's why I wrote that essay on Amy Coney Barrett. Here's a woman. I'm not going to support her just because she's a woman, because my question is, is this a woman who upholds or dismantles patriarchy? What? Because if she's working to uphold it, she does not get my support. So what I want to do is dismantle that patriarchy. I'm not going to work from within. I know that there are some people who choose to work from within. Good luck to them. But if you choose to work from within, be very aware of how that within gets within you. Because we're all socialized by patriarchy. We all have to be very aware of how we must basically unsocialize ourselves from that patriarchy. When people ask me, well, how do you see the dismantling of the patriarchy? What are the practical ways that I can do that? I tell them my solution to that is what I call feminism in 3D. And those three Ds are defy, disobey, and disrupt the patriarchy. Because I think that when people think about feminism, they think about this thing you do maybe once every two years when you go on a protest. And some people don't even like to protest or can't protest or whatever it is. And I, I remind them, look, I did not come out of my mother's womb yelling, fuck the patriarchy. It takes you know, years and years of daily practice, and I call it daily practice. So I want people to remember that these three Ds are like lifting weights. You know, when you first start lifting weights, you know, at the gym or you're in your weight room or whatever it is, you start with, you know, like lighter weights and you work your way up as your muscles get more and more powerful. And I want people to, to think of feminism like that. Every day, find a way to defy, disobey and disrupt the patriarchy so that you can strengthen your feminist muscles. And that way, you you more practically and with more power in your feminist muscles start to dismantle the patriarchy. And do you see this as ever being a soft pro? Because I'm, I'm quite like to pick apart. These are these are hard words you use. And I think there is a good reason for that. But people might say, oh, well, you know, you get more stuff done if you persuade people to be on your side rather than making them defensive. Are you are you saying that we should, you know, we should dispense with polite politics or is there a, is there a place for that? How do you see or is it just I mean, it's not for you, clearly, but, but how yeah. do you see it for everyone else? Yeah, you know, I get that all the time. I'm like, I, Mona, if you just stop wearing, swearing less, Mona, if you just stop yelling, Mona, if you just smiled more, you know, all of it's really interesting that. In, while we fight these oppressions, these injustices, we are told to be nice, polite, quiet, not swear, all of those things. And, and those things, those demands are never made of patriarchy, of the people who are unjust and of the people who are violent against us and of those people who are, you know, partaking in all of those tentacles of the octopus. So it, it's really interesting that that onus is put on us and not the other way around. So I'm not interested in making people comfortable because because I, I revel in the discomfort. I, you know, it's several times in the book I say that does this make you uncomfortable? Good, because in that discomfort, is where you begin to question your privilege. First of all, you realize that you have privilege and then you begin to question your privilege. And I consider discomfort a form of discombobulation where I kind of come in, scramble the signals a bit and then make you see things differently. So, so I'm not interested in being nice, polite or making people feel comfortable. I'm deliberately profane and I'm deliberately making you uncomfortable so that you can question all of these things you took for granted. 
So last question before we get to the from me before we get to the audience questions. Um, sins, you know, they wouldn't sins wouldn't exist if they weren't fun, right? There's got to be something fun. So you've got this list of seven. Which is your favourite one? Which one do you relish most? Oh gosh. Um, well, I love profanity, obviously, you know, because I mean, as you can, can tell, I mean, I, I I swear a lot and I enjoy swearing, but I, I lust is also a, a, a big favorite of mine, and, and that's going to be the subject of one of my forthcoming books because I'm I'm working on several book projects right now because I, I I love the way that lust is not just about sex, but lust. The way that I write the chapter is about queering queering things that we are also told to take for granted. So queering uh, being straight or heteronormative, queering being monogamous or mononormative. So I'm just going to clarify. So are you saying queering or queering? It's queering, right? Yeah, queering, yeah, as, queering. as in being queer, because I yes. identify as queer. So so queering all of that, taking all of these things and, you know, stop asking people, so when did you know you were queer or gay or bisexual? And, and and start, like, you know, so many people in the LGBTQ community for years have been saying, well, why do you assume that anyone is not queer or heterosexual? But I love queering because, again, this is June Jordan now, one of my heroes, the black bisexual poet and feminist activist. She wrote an incredible essay about the power, the revolutionary power of being bisexual in the 1990s. So, you know, this was decades ago. And she talks about how sexuality and sexual politics are central to any revolutionary movement. So lust is also a particular favorite of mine because for me, the heart of the revolution is consent and agency. And the heart of that is saying, I own my body and I have fun with my body. Whether I shave my hair, whether you know I add more tattoos, whether I'm dancing, whatever it is, I own my body. And the fun, the fun ways that I use my body against the patriarchy, uh, they're all part of the revolution against patriarchy for me. Uh, well, it's good that the revolution is going to be fun. So <laughs> let's get to some questions from uh, the audience. So the first, we sort of have to deal with the first one first, which is there's a picture behind you uh, and somebody would like to know that they are anonymous. They'd like to know what it is. Well, the picture behind me is actually of an Egyptian feminist activist. I'm going to put the camera back a bit so you can see it. There it is. And then I come back. So this is an Egyptian feminist activist called Alia El-Mahdi, who in the year of the Egyptian revolution, 2011, uh, took a picture of herself naked in her home and posted it on her blog. And this was, I think, end of October, beginning of November of 2011. There was more outrage directed at this young woman who was 21 years old at the time than at the Egyptian military, which subjected 17 Egyptian feminist female activists to so-called virginity tests, a form of sexual assault just for posing a picture of herself naked in her own home. Now, she now lives in Sweden in, in political exile because she, because of the backlash against her in Egypt and because a lawyer affiliated with the regime had raised a lawsuit in to strip her of her Egyptian citizenship. So for choosing to strip, she was going to be stripped of her citizenship. I mean, like, just think about that. And on her chest is written the words, there will be millions of us, because that, for me, is the revolution. And it's a painting by a friend, an artist friend of mine, an Iraqi-Canadian artist called Nadine Faraj, and it was part of her exhibit called Naked Revolt, about women in different parts of the world who use their bodies, topless or naked, as a form of protest. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great backdrop for these interviews, clearly. Um, so we have another question from someone anonymous, which is, I think, something that a lot of the audience, you know, will really want, not be confused about the answer to, which is how can men be allies in this struggle? What do you want the men to do? The good ones? Right. Well, you know, I, I'm learning from especially black feminists. I, I, first of all, I want everyone to read Black Feminists because I think uh, one of the things that I mentioned in my in the chapter on power is the Kumbahi River Collective, which was a collective of black socialist queer women 
who said in the 1970s, when black women are free, we will all be free. Because I want people to imagine that black women are the ones who are at most risk of all those tentacles of the, of the, the, the octopus. So one of the, a black feminist who wrote a book called Hood Feminism, her name is Miki Kendall, and I highly recommend this book. She often uses the word accomplice rather than ally. And I really like that word because accomplice is a much more proactive word. So I want men to be our accomplices against patriarchy because I want men to understand that patriarchy hurts them too. My book is written for women, girls and queer people, but I want men to remember that they too are hurt by patriarchy because only a select few group of men like really benefit from that octopus. So what I want men to do is to use those that feminism in 3D, defy, disobey and disrupt patriarchy and its oppressions whenever you see it. And for men, they will see it much more than I do because they will hear their friends make sexist jokes. They will hear their friends make homophobic or transphobic jokes. They will hear their men boys being boys. They will hear um, their friends locker room talk like Donald Trump and his ally and his um, supporters justified his horrendous misogyny when he said, when you're famous women, let you grab them by the pussy. Disrupt that. When you see a man saying something to a woman or attacking a woman, disrupt it, defy it, disobey it. And understand that when you do that, you're not just helping women. You're dismantling a system that hurts you. And, you know, and this is also really important for the men who say, you know what? I'm not violent. I've never raped a woman. I'm not, stop saying that, you know, the hashtag not all men brigade, you know. And, I, and my response to them is, unless you're an accomplice in the fight to dismantle patriarchy, you actively benefit from patriarchy. Because even if you don't rape and even if you don't abuse and even if you don't beat a woman, you you actively benefit from a system that keeps women terrified of all those things. Because, you know, just like you said, uh, you, you were quoting from my book about how men feel that they can rape women because they never ever imagine we will fight back. So I want men to think about that. They benefit directly, just in the way that we, in the same way that we tell white people, you benefit from racism and white supremacy. So unless you're actively dismantling white supremacy, understand that you're actively benefiting. Men actively benefit from, from patriarchy unless they're actively trying to dismantle it. And I think it's possible that's a good flag, you know, if men are looking, because I certainly have male friends who say, well, I want to help. I don't know, is that if you can see something that benefits you above a woman or a queer person, that's the thing, right? Do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is, there's quite a lot of it around. And I think, you know, I, I think there's, there are a lot. Looking is the first thing and doing the little things matters. OK, we've got another question here, um, which is the sort of now this one. I, I am sure you will have opinions on this. It says, do you think the feminist movement is united or do you think it's splintering into different groups with different aims? Hmm, okay, well, that, that's an interesting question because, you know, we often hear about white feminism, liberal feminism, neoliberal feminism, you know, things like that. And I actively identify as an intersectional feminist. And also, and this, this kind of like, this is very specific to the US and the UK, but I'm sure it applies in many other places too. I'm also a trans ally and accomplice. So I'm a, I'm a pro trans feminist. And I think that the feminist movement in the US and in the UK specifically are definitely split along those lines. And, and it enrages me to see too many feminists in the UK and the US be transphobic and actively exclude trans people and gender non-conforming people. And I absolutely reject that. And if that is called splitting the feminist movement, then I'm all for it because I want nothing to do with anyone who 
holds up any of those tentacles of the of the patriarchy and claims to be feminist at the same time. So I'm very intersectional, as the again the law professor Kimberly Crenshaw said. You know, law professors are important in all these you know theories and and terms that come up. They come up with. She came up with the term intersectional feminism, and intersectional feminism basically is a way of looking at who is hurt the most by all of those tentacles and how can we fight those tentacles to ensure that no one is ignored. And if the trans community for some feminists is going to be sacrificed, these are not feminists that I will ever ally or be an accomplice with. I think there's a really interesting assumption in the question, which is that if if you want, there's this assumption that has to be a tribe, right? You can set tribes against each other. That's a, that's a useful tool for the other side, right? If you can create two tribes and then everyone just, I mean, that's a general thing in society at the moment. Everyone's creating tribes and they all spend waste time arguing about the tribes rather than the actual problem. Drives me mad. Anyway, so there's another question here about the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we've off, we've heard this phrase a lot in the past six months that it, it sets gender equality back a generation. So do you see that? do you think it can be undone? Well, I see that. I think that one of the things that the pandemic has definitely revealed is what so many are calling the shadow pandemic or something that has all, always been a pandemic and was ignored, which is the pandemic of violence against women and girls that is specifically carried out at home. You know, home is a very dangerous place. So that, as I said earlier, 30% increase in violence against women and girls at home and, and many queer people too. And then when you look at the, the workforce, uh, so many women have been pushed out of the workforce. When you look at why they've been pushed out, it's that they've been pushed out because the industries that women have been pushed into in the workforce are those that have been affected the most during the pandemic. So retail, hospitality and care. So that also has to make us wonder, you know, what kind of jobs were women allowed to have? And what kind of jobs? And also, I want people to think about home, because, you know, before the pandemic, any kind of work that was done at home was never considered work and was never valued and was never paid. So women's unpaid labor, you know, for decades, feminist economists have been saying, you know, if we took into account uh, the, the labor, the, the work that women do at home and we gave it a value, GDP would look very different. And now... People who are privileged are working from home. That's considered a privilege, you know, and, and, and people who are called essential workers are working outside of the home and they're the least valued. So it's like it's an upside down kind of like equation. This is why I talk about the octopus called patriarchy, because definitely a, a tentacle is capitalism. In the United States, there are more, actually around the world, there are more billionaires now than there were before the pandemic. And in the US, the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world, there is more hunger and more poverty during the pandemic than before. So clearly the world that we had before the pandemic was wrong on so many levels. And as a feminist, I'm not invested in just fighting the misogyny that the pandemic has revealed. I'm fighting, I'm interested in fighting the, the, the octopus that the pandemic has made especially brutal and violent. So yes, it is setting back gender equality and it's setting back, for me, the, the fight against patriarchy because patriarchy isn't just a fight against misogyny. Patriarchy is also saying there should not be people so hungry in the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world that they are stealing baby food so that they can keep their children alive. And do you see any optimism in that? I mean, because one of the things that COVID has done is disrupted everything, but it also means you can build back differently. And, you know, there are places where well, perhaps these, even the privileged men who have perhaps been decision-making positions suddenly have worked out how hard it is to look after a small child at home all day. Do you see that, is there anything like that that makes you optimistic that actually in this process of building back, actually we can spot these things and just do a better job? 
Yeah, well, you know, people keep talking about going back to normal. I don't want to go back to normal. I say fuck normal because normal is that octopus. Normal is what brought us here because under that rubric of normal, we were told to accept so many things that should never have been acceptable. Now, the older I get, the more my feminism has led me to anarchism and I'm an anarchist feminist. And often when you tell people I'm an anarchist, people laugh at you and say, well, you know, that's impossible. We're never going to get that. And so for me, the kind of the feminist revolution, the anarchist feminist revolution is making the impossible possible. And I think that's what the pandemic has helped us do, to imagine something other than that normal. We, you know, my, my friends who are disabled are saying, ah, oh, so now we can have classes and meetings like this online. Whereas when we asked for this as, you know, the disabled communities, you told us it was impossible. And, you know, so many other things that we were told were impossible have suddenly been shown to be, oh, quite possible. So I want this to be an opportunity where we, we do imagine what we were told impossible and work really hard to make it possible. So for me, poverty should not exist. We have enough money in the world where poverty should not exist. We have enough homes in the world that are empty by and large, where being unhoused or homeless should never be the case. We have enough food across the world where no one should be hungry. And, you know, usually when you say those kind of things, people laugh at you and say, ha, ah, what kind of utopia is that? But this is a once in a, in a lifetime opportunity where a global pandemic that has stopped and affected all of us, that hasn't happened in a century, if this is not the opportunity to imagine what we were told is impossible, then what is? I think, yes, I think that's very important in seeing what to do is now is the time to do it. Now, we have a question here, which which includes a story, and I'm not going to read out the whole story. But I think for this event, it's very important because, you know, as we were saying, there is this perception that terrible things happen somewhere else. And we have a question, a comment. This is I presume this is from a woman. She says she was a medical doctor. She was raped by the man to whom she was engaged. And she she tells the story that I won't. But it's clear that this is a very intelligent, bright woman who eventually ch had to withdraw the charges against this man due to her health and the situation she was in. And she says there's a statistic that less than 8% of raped or assaulted women succeed in their case against the antagonist. And she wants to know whether the patriarchy, this kind of thing has become more easy to confront. But before you answer that question, I want to raise the point with the audience that I don't know how big the audience for this live event is, but at le least one woman in there was raped by her partner. And I think that is a really, all by itself, that is an important thing. But tell us about whether this this horrific statistic about the, the women who succeed in their allegations, is that getting better or worse? Yeah. So but the essay, I, I write an essay every week for Feminist Giant, this newsletter that I said that I write. And my essay last week was called Fuck the Police. And it was an intentionally provocative title because for so many reasons. But I mention a statistic that is very similar for the US. And out for every 1,000 cases of rape, only five result in a conviction that leads to a prison sentence. So clearly the system is wrong. And that's why I quote the feminist psychiatrist Judith Herman, who said that the legal system was designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women and children from the superior power of men. And that's why when people ask me, you know, you're inciting, when you talk about violence and fighting back, you're just inciting violence and violence begets violence. And my question to them is, well, what about the centuries of patriarchal violence, misogynist violence against us? That's what begets violence. That's what incites violence. Because clearly, as you know, the questioner has brought up, the system is not working for us. So the statistics are terrible across the world. I thank 
the person, whoever um, sent the question, for, for sharing their story. And there are horrific stories like this all over the world. And every day, you know, there are at least one of every four women have been subjected to sexual assault. One of the things that happened in, in the UK after the Sarah Everard case is that so many women shared their experiences with sexual violence. You saw about how I think it was like 90% of young women in the UK had been subjected to sexual assault or harassment in their lifetime. And now you have a Me Too for schoolgirls where they go on, on a website and share their horrific stories. So it's like every age group, everywhere you go, this is not specific to a particular culture, religion or country because patriarchy, that octopus, is universal. So clearly our system is not working. And again, this is one of the things that I want to leave in what we call the before time, in what people call normal. Fuck that normal. As we emerge, so many of us are still, you know, at home or in some kind of like waiting period. I want us to emerge into a world that doesn't have that as a normal, that doesn't have as a normal one in four women are going to be sexually assaulted or sexually harassed in their life. We have a question from Sarah here, which is possibly slightly tongue-in-cheek but I think it's it's I'll be interested to hear what you say so she says you've become a, a successful writer living under patriarchy do you think you personally have benefited from patriarchy or benefited despite of patriarchy which side of that, <laughs> that line are you on <laughs> that's a good question you know because so before I answer that I want to acknowledge that we have all been socialized by patriarchy I often say that Talking about patriarchy or asking people if they're aware of patriarchy is like asking a fish, what is water? And, you know, fish is like, and I know this is used in so many other analogies as well, but, you know, fish isn't going to know what water is because it's its every day. And that's what patriarchy is. So I want to acknowledge that we all have been socialized by patriarchy. We've all internalized its messages. And none of us, including me, feminist giant as I am, as I call my newsletter, are completely free of patriarchy. But what I do is that I'm aware of it every day. And whenever I see the ways that I've internalized it, I actively try to, to uh, you know, unroot it or to, you know, to, to get it out of me. And so is it because of or in spite of? I would say in spite of. I, I really would say in spite of because I can't, I, I don't see anything that, that patriarchy represents that, that has benefit. Now, do I have privilege? I absolutely have privilege. You know, I am an able-bodied cisgender um, woman who has enough money for her needs, who has shelter, who has enough food. I, I'm surrounded by privilege. And, and so all those things, of course, have helped me. But many of them have also been in spite of patriarchy. So I, if I were to ask that question, I would change, um, did you benefit from patriarchy to do you recognize that you're a very privileged woman and that you have privileges that so many others don't have? Yes, I absolutely do. But whatever I've achieved, I believe I've achieved despite patriarchy. So actually, the, the next question, another anonymous one, actually, you referenced this before, it's the, this everyone's invited social media movement, it was testimonies of rape culture. And the question is about social media, because we can see, you know, the Arab Spring was an example of this, there have been these, these cases where the problem might have been there for a long time, but social media, maybe this is a game changer. What do you think about social media? I love social media. I live on social media. I live on Twitter, Instagram, you know, so, so much of social media. And the reason that I love it, as toxic as it can be sometimes, and I recognize that regimes around the world have uh, used, you know, social media against us now. It's not just revolutionary movements, as we saw in, you know, various countries across North Africa and the Middle East, Southwest Asia. So it, 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 social media is like any other kind of tool. You know, it depends on how you use it and, and who is using it. But... 
what social media has done is it, it has allowed, a, a, given a platform to people that didn't have a platform before, for people to come on and say, I count. And there are so many examples. There is an indigenous woman in Canada called Dolores Schilling, who every day goes on social media and says, will you support me? Every day I come on here and talk about murdered and missing indigenous women. I would not have known about this movement if it weren't for social media. Black feminists in the United States have organized wonderfully. Black Lives Matter began on social media, on Facebook. So basically what I'm saying is that people who, because of patriarchy, were marginalized or not given a platform. Now, no one is voiceless. I'm not saying voiceless. We all have a voice, but we don't always hear each other's voices and we have to ask why. And it's often because we're marginalized or not allowed a space on mainstream media or other platforms. Social media has become a platform. So for trans people, for fat people, for disabled people, for people, basically all the people who have been marginalized by patriarchy have found ways to say, I count and I am here thanks to social media. So I'm a massive fan of social media. Yes, it's toxic. Yes, every other day I tell someone to fuck off on social media, but I also live on social media because I recognize all the spaces that it has basically kind of blossomed into thanks to people who've moved in and said, I am here, my voice deserves to be heard, and I count. It's interesting, isn't it? Because really, in a way, the defining feature of social media is that it's not bandwidth limited. It's not only 50 people you hear from in a day and every other form of media basically in any one newspaper there's only you can only fit so many and social media everyone everyone who wants to be there you know it genuinely could be everybody and it's a really interesting difference um so oh i think this is an excellent question to finish on so i think we are going to finish on this one if you mona el tahawi were prime minister tomorrow is there one <laughs> You might have a struggle with the one. Is there one law or policy that you would introduce that you think would make life better for women? Well, you know, I, because I'm an anarchist feminist and I have all these questions that I want people to recognize, this is what I would do. I would give everyone universal basic income and I would make healthcare and education free in every level. And I would ensure that every empty apartment, hotel room and house is there and open for any unhoused or homeless person. So there is enough money. No one should be poor. There is enough food. No one should be hungry. I would, I would make sure food was available for everyone. And there are enough homes. No one should be unhoused. I think once that, that would be the first thing I would do. Once we do all of those, I can start building on them. And would you, would you ever go into mainstream politics? I'm sure that's... Never. The, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> I need to be able to say, fuck you and fuck this shit and not have to compromise on anything. <laughs> well, it sounds like you, you are doing very well at making your voice heard from the, the side. And I, I encourage you keep, to keep doing it. So we, we are sadly out of time. We have to finish there. Thank you so much, Mona. Thank you to the audience for joining us and to Intelligence Squared for putting on the debate. 